now. This evening, I hope you'll be back, Brother Fair will be speaking in the evening service, and Pastor Pirate will be making their presentation for this year. So we'd be delighted to have you join us for the 6 o'clock service this evening. Hope you can make it, please. For now, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 5, Paul writes, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Verse 11, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwelleth in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Our focus this morning will be primarily on verse number 5, so I hope you'll get acquainted with it. For they that are after the flesh do mine the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. As many of you know and have known this last week, we celebrated another birthday. I'm now 29 and a half. I keep getting younger, as you well know. And for some time, many of you are very well aware that I've used a verse of Scripture to tell you that I was 29. And that verse of Scripture is the passage in Psalm or Proverbs 23. It says in verse 7, As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, I've often said that I'm a young man in an older man's body. As simple as that. And there's a lot of folks feel that way. But that verse of Scripture parallels what Romans chapter 8 and verse number 5 is saying. It is a matter of thinking. But I can tell you this, thinking that poison is pastry will not make it so. Now, it's not the power of positive thinking that Norman Vincent Peale got off years ago on, and, and he just thought if you think right thoughts about whatever, you know, if you have, uh, have some kind of disease, if you started thinking good positive thoughts about that, you could heal yourself. That's not what the Bible's teaching. That's not what Romans chapter 8, verse number 5 is talking about. And that's not what Proverbs chapter 23 and verse number 7 is talking about. But what the Bible does teach, and does teach succinctly, is that there is a correlation between your thinking and your behavior. And that you can't get away from. There is a distinction, and is a succinct distinction set forth in the Scripture about this truth, that it is an evidence that is proven over and over and over again. So what Proverbs chapter 23, verse 7 teaches is the same thing that Romans chapter 8, verse number 5 teaches. A person is as the person's mind is. And that is, as your mind is, so is your life. Your mind, so to speak, is the captain of the ship. It sort of takes you in the direction you're going. So you can't be one way and think another way. You can't do that. You cannot be thinking, in, as the Scripture says in verse number 5, you cannot be thinking on spiritual things and be in the flesh. That's a given. That's the guarantee. You can't be in the flesh and think spiritual things. He says it's impossible. It just won't work that way. And his concept of being in the flesh is someone who has not yet come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But from Romans chapter 8, 
in the perspective that's set forth here, a people who live according to the flesh and allow their lives to be basically <clears throat> controlled by the flesh, he is saying here these folks are still in a state of sinful nature. They have not, as it were, come to live over that or above that. It's that group of people they set their minds on and are they deeply interested in, they're constantly, they talk about, they engage in glory in the things of the old flesh. The reason is because they're in the flesh. They're not born again, saved by the grace of God. And so the things of their life that we call of the flesh come to the surface. That's what they talk about. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. I was uh, reading an article some time back, and it was reading, it was an article about Muhammad Ali. It was written back when he was the heavyweight champion of the world. And in fact, this particular article says that he was going to the, the Philippine Islands. He was sitting on a tarmac at an airport on a 747 airplane, and in the plane was getting ready to taxi to leave. It said that the flight attendant walked down the aisle, noticed that he didn't have his seatbelt on, and the flight attendant looked down at him and said, please fasten your seatbelt, sir. Ali looked up proudly, snapped back at the uh, attendant and said, Superman don't need no seat belt lady. She then, without hesitation, stared down at him and said, quote, Superman don't need no airplane. Now buckle the seatbelt. <laughs> yeah. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, or at least he, he has an attitude about it. That is, he reflects, and if you were around any programs that showed Muhammad Ali when he was a champion. I mean, that's all he talked about. He had poetry about it. I mean, it was just all, he was just permeated with it. Well, that's what it is. What was in his heart, what his thinking was about him being so great, it just oozed out. And sometimes it went too far, thinking, you know, he could fly in airplanes without seatbelts. Well, the point made is people's thinking and behavior are totally connected. And you get a point of that in the scriptures in verse number five here before us in Romans chapter eight. It says that Paul's actually stating that this truth that God has it lost people, though with no relationship with Jesus Christ. That is, they've never been saved. They're not believing in Christ. They living a life after the flesh because their mind and their thinking is after the flesh. That's what Romans chapter 8 and verse number 5 is saying. The reverse of the same is set forth in the same verse, verse 5. It's also stated, God's truth, that saved people, those who have believed on Jesus Christ as Savior, are living a life after the Spirit because their mind, their thinking, is after the Spirit. So when you come now to verse number 6, that's the basis of what we want to talk about. But verse number 6, I call your attention to. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What you need to note in the verse is not necessarily what you think the verse just said. Note what Paul did not say. Paul did not say in verse 6, For to be carnally minded leads to death. Didn't say that. It says, For to be carnally minded is what? Death. So what this passage of Scripture is, is saying and stating for you and me is a fundamental truth that's all through the Bible. And that is simply this. The person who has not repented of sin, believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as personal Savior, is already dead spiritually. This is a fundamental truth of the Scripture. And verse number 6 is underlining it, emphasizing it all over again. People whose minds are constantly on the things of the flesh... The things that satisfy, gratify the flesh. The Bible is saying very simply, these people are dead people. They have no spiritual life. 
And so don't try to make them spiritual. Don't, don't get them to join churches. Don't get them to come down aisles and sign cards that they want to be a part of a fellowship. That's not what they need. They don't need a new membership in a new church. They need a new life in Jesus Christ. And so don't you go trying to bring these people into the flock of God. And one of the things here in the church of Rome, and Paul's concern was these folks were getting amalgamated. They were getting mixed and mingled, as it were, into the local fellowship. And unlike and not so unlike the church over in Corinth, in Corinth's situation, there were the Jews people there, but there was also the Gentile converts. And those folks brought along a lot of their own culture back into the church at Corinth. And you don't have to go very far back in remembering when we preached through 1 Corinthians of all the trouble that was in the church at Corinth. I mean, it got down to one of the most sacred things that the church deals with, and that is the communion service. It was the point where those folks came to eat at the communion service, and as you well know, I'm sure, that they had an agape feast. They called it the Eucharist, you know, the Eucharistos in the Greek. It was the, the love feast where that they had a supper, and then at the end of the supper, they had communion. And the fact of the matter is, what was happening in the church, the church, instead of the communion service unifying the church at Corinth, it was dividing it because the rich people wouldn't let the poor people eat with them in the social gatherings. So here you had a, an occasion that was supposed to be unifying was actually divisive. And I say to you that uh, that's the kind of thing that would happen when people who come into a church, one, if they're not saved, or two, if they're not spiritually mature. And in their case, it was a spiritual maturity issue. Here, Paul the Apostle is dealing with folks who are just outright, flat out, not saved. And he said, these people who live in a carnal mind are not saved people. I want you to see something. Paul's putting it before us in, a, in what I call a spiritual equation. As somebody says, it's not a spiritual consequence. And I mean by that, in this verse of Scripture, verse number 6, for to be carnally minded is death. It's a statement, uh, and, and in this case, it's an equation saying, if this person is thinking fleshly all the time, then this person is not saved. Period. See, we've, we've given so much ground on this that we almost act like, hey, you can be carnally minded and go to heaven. That's not what this verse says. See, we've tried to make two categories out of this thing. It's saying you can be a carnal Christian. You won't find that in this text. Now, you may go over to Corinthians and find something that gives some what we call worded success to that, but you won't find it here. What Paul's saying, people who are carnally minded, who are simply looking out for the satisfaction of the flesh, and that's the constant bent of their life, Paul says the reason is because of their thinking, In their thinking tells you how the fact that there's no life there. So if a person is not saved by the grace of God, he's going to have a carnal mind, he's going to think in that. The consequences, instead of it being an equation, as verse 6 would state, a consequence would be this. Because of the lost mankind is already spiritually dead, then it would be saying their minds, their thinking, the bent of their life is totally fixed on the flesh. That would be a consequence. But in this case, it's an equation because it says to be carnally minded, fleshly minded, fleshly oriented is to tell people around you, I'm dead spiritually. I'm not going to heaven. I'm happy with what I got. I'm enjoying this world and all the fleshly enjoyments and the fleshly pleasures. I'm having a ball. That's why you go down to a bar on a Saturday night and those folks down there act like they're having a ball. I mean, they're laughing, cutting up. They're just enjoying themselves to no end. Why? Because they're spiritually dead, and the flesh is what satisfies, and it is enjoyable. The Bible says that you can enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. For a season. But there comes a time when there is a payday. And payday comes eventually for everybody. I mean, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, 
after all the fun and game and after all the pleasure, after this, the judgment. So there's a payday, and it will come, and there are no exclusions, and there are no exceptions. So the issue that every person has to face is, one, am I carnally minded or am I spiritually minded? And that really is the issue. It's not what you say. It's what you think. It's not what you say. It's what you really think. And that's what this says. To be carnally minded, to constantly barraged of thought, constantly is of a fleshly gratifying nature, reveals that you're not spiritually alive. You're spiritually dead. So here in this context, in this passage of Scripture, goes back to where we began as unbelievers in the first place. Paul wrote it to the church at Ephesus. He said it in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 1. He said, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Everybody starts there. Every person born into this world is born dead in sin, dead spiritually, blind spiritually. Everybody. By the way, don't get Paul wrong and don't uh, misunderstand. We all know that there is a sense in which sin leads to death. We know that. But that's not what this verse says. This verse is not talking about the consequences of carnal mind. It's talking about the equation or what we call the state of the believer or unbeliever. In this case, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He said something similar in Romans 7. He said, For when we were in the flesh, the motions of sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So those occasions say, hey, look, people are born sinners, and their life of sin is going to bring forth death. By the way, that's why babies die. Don't forget that. We went with that way back over in the early part of Romans. Babies die because babies are sinners. Uh, you're going to die because you were born a sinner. The fact of the matter is salvation can change your destiny, but it cannot change the fact that you're going to die. It cannot change that. God's ordained that by decree. It's appointed unto everybody who wants to die. And after this, the judgment. So the fact of the matter is, babies die because they're born sinners. Are they? Uh, and by the way, it's not because they sinned. It's because Adam sinned and they're child or children of Adam. We died or sinned in Adam and in essence we died in Adam. When Adam died, in essence, judgment of death was passed on the whole human race because he was our representative. And you can't get away from that. So the fact of the matter is, it's why it's important for you to understand this passage of Scripture here in Romans 8 is addressing the state of death in which every individual born is born as a sinner dead to spiritual things. By the way, a lost person, spiritually speaking, is unresponsive to the things of God as a dead body is in a casket to the weeping and the shedding of tears at a funeral. Years ago, when we were pastoring in Ohio, I had an occasion, I got a call from a local funeral home and uh, the short funeral home called, and uh, Bill Short was a friend of ours, and Bill said, uh, Pastor Henry, could you come over and do a funeral service for us? And uh, I said, yes, be glad to, Bill. Where, when, and what time, and who, and what, and all the details. He said, well, it's sort of unusual. He said, you don't need to come to the funeral home. There'll be no calling, but you need to go to, and he named the cemetery, and which was just up from where our house was, which is the cemetery we could see from where we lived. Where I live now at Park Drive is the first time in my entire life that I have lived. I have not been in view of a cemetery. I've often said it's good for preachers to see cemeteries often. You know, remind you people are dying. 
and you need to reach them with the gospel. But anyway, he said, Here's, there is a little chapel. It's a little stone chapel. It sits right in the middle of the cemetery. We'll be there at 10 o'clock. If you could be there about 9.30, uh, I'll give you the particulars, and then you can have the service. He said, the key is, it's a 10-year-old girl. She died of leukemia. She's the daughter of a major in the Army. He is, uh, his family, relatives are here. His wife is traveling in. The daughter was staying with folks here, so she died here. And he is on his way. They'll be here. They'll arrive here about 9 o'clock. If you'd like to meet them, I'll arrange that. I said, yes, I would. I met the family around 9 o'clock, went at 9.30 to the cemetery, and about 10 till the hour, went into this little chapel that wouldn't hold more than 15 people. I remind you that the girl had been staying with relatives had died there, and this was the first time her mother would see her. This mother walked into that little stone building, which is already cool and cold and damp uh, from the fact that it was outside, unheated, no air venting of any kind. It's more like a castle in some English hillside. And we walked into that thing, and, and I went in with the family, and that casket was already sitting at the front of that little chapel. And this mother ran down that aisle and grabbed this little girl out of that casket and lifted her up and hugged her. And... Um, the sight that I saw thereafter is the most revealing thing I've ever seen in my life. This mother had not seen this daughter, I understood, for two months. She had been living with the relatives there, died, and the mother had not gotten back. And because she died unexpectedly with the leukemia, though they knew she had it. When she held that child up, this child obviously did not respond to that mother. And the look on that mother's face, she sort of dropped back and laid the child back down and stepped back as if I, I forgot she's dead. I expected her to hug me. I expected her to respond to me. I expected her to kiss me. As I was standing over at the end of the casket and saw that mother, she stepped back two steps and from then on it was just as if this was a total stranger in that casket. And in one sense of the word, that's exactly what it was. Because this little girl's soul and spirit was not there. This is where she lived. But that's not who it is. The Bible is very clear. The absence from the body is to be present from the Lord. And the absence of the body takes place for the believer the moment that he dies. Our soul and our spirit is transported to the very presence of God. And stays there until the opportune time for us to receive those glorified bodies. And I say to you what that woman experienced at that casket in the holding of that child and the lack of response from that child and in my looking into her face and yes I was weeping tears were coming down my face as I saw her see her daughter for the first time in two months uh, and then seeing her shocked at the fact there was no response and then she just sort of cautiously laid her back in the casket and took her hands back and stepped backward three to four steps and was seated on the front row. She was shocked. There was no response. Let me tell you, that's exactly the way it is with lost people to spiritual things. There is no response in the heart of a lost pagan with that which is of a spiritual dimension. That which comes from a spiritual fear, sphere has no contact within that of the human heart that is dwelling upon, thinking only, and is minded by fleshly things. Let me take you to the Old Testament to an interesting passage. It came to mind this week. It's in Psalm 19. You know it well. It's a, a great chapter. And uh, I won't necessarily read all the chapter. There's 20 or 14 verses in the chapter. But let me call your attention to something. I find this very interesting. This is Psalm 19. It's verses 1 through 6 of this text. If you were outlining it, would be God speaks in the skies. 
Remember, it's Psalm 19. He goes, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The first, first six verses is God, as it were, speaking and revealing himself through the skies. And that's so obvious. Then verses 7 through 11 is God speaking through the scriptures. Verse 7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He says, Moreover, or more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. And verse 11, closing off this section, says, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. In this verse, verses 7 through 11, God speaks to us. God reveals himself in the scriptures. What's interesting about that is that, that uh, first off, it tells you what the Bible is. You see, in verse 7, it says the Bible is a perfect law. It's a sure testimony. In verse number 8, it says that the Bible is right statutes, pure commandments. In verse 9, it says the Bible is clean fear of the Lord or true righteous judgment. Then he says in verse 10, this Bible is more to be desired than gold, sweeter also than the honeycomb tells you what the Bible is. Then it goes a step further than that. And in those same verses, it tells you what the Bible does. What the Bible does. God speaking now and showing himself, revealing himself to mankind. And God's word tells you what the Bible is. And then he turns right around and tells you what the Bible does. In verse number seven, it says it converts the soul and it makes wise. Verse eight said it rejoices the heart enlightens the eyes. Verse 10 said it enriches as gold and satisfies as honey. Verse 10. And then it says in verse 11 that it warns us and rewards us. That's what the Bible is and that's what the Bible does. And the point made about that is God revealed himself in his word and he, and he put it out where everybody could see it. But then he goes a step further. In verses 12 through 14 God speaks to us in our souls. So in verse number 12 it says who can understand his errors Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. His point is in this last section, verses 12 through 14, where God speaks in our souls to us, to individuals. The point about it is that only God knows all of our sin. Only God then can cleanse us from our sin. And only God through his Holy Spirit indwelling the believer can keep his servant from sin as he yields to that Holy Spirit that indwells him. So all this revelation in this text of Scripture, and then he closes this whole section in verse number 14, to the words of my mouth and the meditation. What's meditation? That's what you think upon. That's what your mind constantly, continuously, perpetually thinks upon. That's your meditations. 
Maybe your job, it may be what you're going to eat, maybe you're talking or thinking right now what you're going to have for lunch, maybe you're thinking about what your afternoon holds, maybe you're looking ahead to the whole week, but whatever it is of those meditations, this particular point is was a prayer that the psalmist made. He said, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation, what I think upon, come under the acceptable standard of what you see. I want it to be acceptable in your sight. What's interesting about all this, and the only reason I read Psalm 19 in verses 1 through 14 to you and point these things out of how God speaks to us through the skies, He speaks to us through the Scripture, and He speaks to us in our souls, the point I make in all of this that God has alone is doing and what He has done to speak to this world, the unsaved lost person does not see the glory of God revealed in the heavens. The lost person does not see the beauty of the Bible and all that it tells us about ourselves and shows us how we were and what we are and what we could be and lost people does not or an individual does not see how God speaks privately to man's soul and convicts him of his sin and draws him to himself lost man doesn't see any bit of that whole chapter this chapter is an enigma to the lost person he doesn't look at the skies at night and say boy isn't there a wonderful God that made this he doesn't look at that he doesn't have a clue why because he's dead spiritually and it, and it tells you the fact is that the lost cannot see because they're blind to spiritual things, but also because they are absolutely dead spiritually. And I remind you of this. The reason evolution is so entrenched in our society is not for the lack of evidence to the contrary view, but for the lack of spiritual life in the people who teach and study the sciences. That's the problem. If you had people who were studying the sciences who were born again and saved by the grace of God, I'll lay you ten to one odds that in every single case they'd come to the reality there's a God in heaven who had a son who died on the cross and he can be known by simple faith in him. Diane wrote this track that we've given out here at the church over the years. And uh, this track is, Which Came First, The Chicken or the Egg? And uh, Diane wrote, Actually, science cannot prove or disprove evolution or creation. Scientists can observe what exists in the present, but life began in the past. The beginning of the universe was a unique and unrepeatable historical event. Evolutionists and creationists observe the same fossil records, parentheses, which exist in the present, yet they arrive at different conclusions about the past because they begin with different presuppositions. Evolutionists assume there is no intelligent design behind the universe. Therefore, we are merely products of time and chance. Creationists, on the other hand, accept the word of the one who was there in the beginning. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And since science cannot prove either evolution or creation, which one you believe is really a matter of faith? You get that? It is absolutely a fact. What people believe about evolution is just as much faith as anything any Bible-believing Baptist ever believed in his life. Evolution has to believe, be believed by faith. It is, in essence, a religion. It is a belief that there is no God that created the things as we say He did or as the Bible declares, and therefore their only hope is to accept the fact what we read in our textbooks is by faith. You know, made this quantum leap from this species to this one, even though they have never found any of the, quote, missing links between this and that, that doesn't make any difference because there is no room for God in their equation. Now, why is that? Because these people are dead spiritually. When you have someone alive, you see God's fingerprints over everything. 
When you look at the snow that falls in the winter months, you come to realize that there's no single, two single snowflakes that are identical. At least no two alike have ever been found of all the snowstorms that have ever hit this earth. How could that be? Well, it's by divine design of the Creator God who made dead sure that you'd never figure Him out. There's nobody a match for His brilliance, His intelligence, or His great power. And when you ever did, you'd obviously be God like Him. And that's what the world is trying to do. Create a God that they can control. You can never control the God that created this universe. You can never control the God that sent His Son to this world to die for sinful men. You can never somehow control the God that looks into the hearts of men, women, boys, and girls and changes them from what they were to what they ought to be for their good and for His glory. This passage of Scripture says that it has to do and deals with their God has revealed all these things. God has shown it to be so, but the problem is lost mankind cannot see it. I remind you that lost people are self-intoxicated. They're self-centered. They're so humanistic. They think themselves to be the center of the universe and woe be he who somehow crosses over into their turf or to their territory. And by the way, that's why their relationships fail so frequently. You see, people that are dead spiritually are very much alive selfishly. And that's exactly what they're interested in. They're interested in me, myself, and I. They're not interested in you and your God and your, His plans. By the way, what's interesting to me is, is what changes take place when people come to faith in Jesus Christ about a self-centeredness or a self-intoxicated person. One of the exciting passages of the Scripture reveal this, that a person who has been quickened by the Holy Spirit, made alive in Jesus Christ through salvation in Christ alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, that person desires that Christ have the preeminence in their life. Let me take you to a passage in Paul's epistles. It's over in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And here's what Paul writes. Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 12. Colossians 1 12. Paul said, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. The first thing is he's giving thanks unto God the Father, which made it possible for him to be a partaker of the inheritance in the saints of that light, that spiritual light. Verse 13, notice who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through the blood, even the forgiveness of sin. Verse 15, who is the image, the Greek word icon, of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Verse 16, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible, invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. And in all things he might have the preeminence. There's not a thing in the world in that text of Scripture elevating man. It's all about him, in whom, he, him. And that's the change that takes place. Lost people always think about me, myself, and I. I didn't like that. I didn't enjoy this. I don't want to go over there. 
I this and I that. And you can just be around him a few minutes and say, oh, this guy's intoxicated with himself. All he thinks about is what he wants, what he likes, what he desires. And by the way, if you watch a lot of television, you'll get a little bit of a tipsy feeling too as a believer about seeing so much of it because that's where it comes from. Programs are just absolutely inundated with this idea. The only person in the world that matters is me and mine and ours. It's not about you and your need. It's about me and my need. By the way, that's another reason why this pastor doesn't buy into the seeker-sensitive so-called churches. Because when you come into a seeker-sensitive church, it's all about you. You know, I've got this need, and I want my need met, and I want to enjoy it, and I don't want it to be long, and I want a certain kind of music, and I want to do it in a certain way. I don't think that's the way it ought to be. I think it ought to be all directed by what does God want, what does God do, and how does He do it. And my heart says, I don't care what man wants. A dead man has no business telling a living man what he ought to be. And he has no business trying to tell a living man what he needs. He doesn't know his need. He's dead to it. People who are spiritually dead have no clue what their greatest need is. It is not a church with exciting program. What they need is salvation by grace that comes only through God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And only then, only then, with their eyes be open and they begin to take in this idea of really what life is about. It's not about you and me. Life is about Him. And by the way, that's the only reason you get to stay here. When you get to a point where your life does not bring Him honor and glory, technically from a biblical standpoint, there's really no reason for you to hang around. If you're living for self and you've been saved by the grace of God and you've gotten selfish again by listening to the pagans and their philosophy about living in life and you're just thinking about yourself totally, you probably, and you'll forgive me, you're probably more in the way than you are in the cause. And that's a bad position to be in with the work of God. I like what Spurgeon said. There's some people in the Christian church who ought to just die and go on to be with heaven. I didn't say that. Spurgeon said that. And by the way, he spoke to several thousand on every Sunday morning, and he spoke to three, four thousand the morning he said that. And he spoke it to his church, the Tabernacle, there in London. He said, some of you ought to just go ahead and die because you stand in the way of the cause of Christ because you're so caught up in your self-interest. You just think about you. You don't think about any other people. You come into a church service and all you think about is what are they going to do for me? And Spurgeon had it right. It's not about us. It's about him. And when you come to a point like Colossians chapter 1 comes to a point where it's all about whom, him, he, father, then you begin to show some respectable change that takes place by the grace of God in salvation. By the way, uh, let me take you to a, a passage you don't have to turn, but I was just reading this week. Ephesians chapter number 5 and verse number 19. Listen, it says, Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. What captured my attention in that phrase was uh, the uh, word there that's uh, um, spiritual songs in verse number 19. Spiritual songs. What the word is and what the word means in humnos in the Greek is uh, it's to sing a religious ode. It means to celebrate God in, in song, to speak of his goodness, his praise, and so forth. That's what it means. And, and the word spiritual in that, pneumatikos, is a word that means supernatural, something that's been regenerated, that's been changed. 
It's not what it always has been. What he's talking about, this is music that has been changed. It's had an effect upon it. And the real ideal is it's supernatural, regenerated, Holy Spirit given. That's what spiritual songs are. What he's saying is, I don't want music in my church that feeds people's flesh. I don't want fleshly music. I don't want you to sit here and, and pat your feet and get physically all excited. But I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in your heart being convicted and convinced that what you're hearing has a spiritual avenue of truth to it that can take you from this level to that level. That's what I'm interested in. You can turn on your radio. By the way, I grew up in Tennessee. I grew up with my family all involved with the Grand Ole Opry. My cousin Bud drove for Dolly Parton for years in her bus all over this country. And, uh, and I'm sure he's not getting any more rewards in heaven than anybody else who drove a, you know, a dump truck. My point is, I have cousins who played at the Grand Ole Opry. Our family was constantly inundated by somebody connected to our family who had Grand Ole Opry contacts. And I, I, you know, people say, well, you know, what do you think about that? Well, I'll tell you what I think about that. I grew up in the South and, and, and in that kind of music constantly. I can tell you right now, there are folks in that neighborhood where I lived that that's everything they do. They'd hum those songs, they'd get in their pickup trucks and cars, and that's the first thing they'd turn on. And it's no surprise to me that half of them, two-thirds of them probably, had problems at home, they didn't attend church regularly, they didn't have the relationship with the Lord they should have had, because you can't listen to music that emphasizes fleshly things and then walk away and be spiritual. Most absurd thing i ever heard in my life. We think we can listen to all kinds of music and it'll have absolutely no effect on me in my spiritual life. You'll forgive me, you're nuttier than a Christmas fruitcake. Because you can't do it. If it goes in your ears, it will affect your brain. And if it gets into your brain cells, you're going to think about it. And if you think about it, you've made the first step toward any commitment. The first step. And I say to you, some of you folks in this auditorium, your music betrays, betrays the sacredness of the spiritual standard you say you believe in. You can't walk on both sides of the track. You can't play over there all week long and then step over here and say, oh, but I'm a Christian. I, I, you, know, I, you can't talk about D-I-V-O-R-S-E or C-E and think about Sunday not being right with God and being in a state of kind of spiritual levity. Ain't going to work. And what this passage of Scripture is saying is that's exactly the fact. We try to live in two worlds. We try to act like we can live over there and enjoy the things of this world, whether it be music or whether it be whatever else. And then we can come to church on Sunday and we can just, boy, pick right up where we left last Sunday and what we went through all this week have absolutely no effect on our life and lifestyle. You're being deceived, my beloved. You're being deceived. And I remind you that our adversary, the devil, walketh about seeking whom he not only deceives, whom he may devour. And he can devour your family in a heartbeat by very simply getting you to believe what your own flesh encourages you to believe. Most of us have not fought with the devil this week. Most of us fought with our own flesh. And many of us lost. The devil doesn't think most of us important enough to deal with us. We're not that high up on his list. But our flesh is. 
And our flesh can keep us from being all that we ought to be. The thing is that you have to die to flesh. And fact is, this text of Scripture says in Romans chapter 8, testifies too, for to be carnally minded is death. That means if that's all you've thought about this week, it doesn't matter how many sheets of paper and what churches you've signed that you come to faith in Christ. If that's been all you've thought about this week is the flesh, then I hate to be the guy to tell you, but this verse of Scripture says you're dead spiritually. You're dead spiritually. You're not alive to Christ. You're alive to the flesh. And to be carnally minded is death. And death in this context means be spiritual death, which means no heaven. You say, but I, 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 I said, I did, I believe. That doesn't say what this verse said. It didn't say anything about that. It just says if you think this way, you're dead. And we want to think of it in terms of, well, I don't think that's what he meant. Let me tell you, I assure you that's what he meant. Because that's what he said. I was reminded this week, picked up a little track, and in that track it had this little statement. It said, it was reported that while Michelangelo was working on a piece of sculpture, as the chips fell at his feet, he would often say, while the marble wastes, the image grows. While the marble wastes, the image grows. That's exactly the way it's supposed to be in a believer's life. When God found you and saved you and changed you from what you were, He did not want you to stay that way when you got into heaven. He wanted to change you from glory to glory all the way along the way. It's the same thing John wrote about over in his epistle or his gospel. He said that Christ must increase and I must decrease. And that's what He wants from you. He wants you to change from what you are to what He wants you to be. And He wants that change to take place in a spiritual context. He doesn't want you just to mentally make up your mind and write out a list of things you've got to change in order to make God happy. He wants it to be from the heart. He wants it to be when you read the Word of God that it speaks to your heart. Don't wait till the pastor gets up on Sunday morning and preaches against some sloppy music that you listen to that you get convicted then. Why didn't you get convicted when you heard it? Why didn't you get convicted when you were listening to it? Why didn't you get convicted when you were watching that program that had all the filthiness on it? Why did you wait till Sunday and come down here and sit in a pew and the pastor gets up and blambasts it and you think he's being unkind and ugly because you didn't get convicted when you watched it? I'm concerned about that. To be carnally minded is death. To be fleshly oriented is death. It concerns me that we don't get convicted about those things. I remind you, the latter part of verse number 6, and I quickly close, is to say that not only to be carnally minded is death, but the opposite is true. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. For a person to have their mind set thinking on the spiritual things, the things of the Spirit, reflects life and peace, which in essence verifies that this is a child of God. You see, the devil's kids do not have spiritual life and they do not have spiritual peace. The truth of the matter is that's exactly why this world is overrun with sinful activities. That's what they're looking for. They're trying to find a missing piece of the puzzle that can give them hope and fulfillment and joy. And what they don't understand is only the person who has new life in Jesus Christ has life and peace. And spiritual things then make good sense. You see... Uh, I must hurry. Closing this text of Scripture, I remind you of two or three things, and I would encourage you to take them with you. First off, 
A Christian is more than someone who just says he or she is one. That, that's just not enough. We've played that game before and we've played it too long. And I fear there are going to be people who are going to one day wake up in hell and say, Wait, what? The world went wrong. I said I was a Christian. But that's not enough. You see, I think we've made it to be just a thing of what we say. Romans chapter 8 verses 5 and 6 says it's not what you say, it's what you think. If yours is a carnal mind and that's all it thinks about, then it's, it's the fact. You don't have salvation. If yours is a spiritual mindedness and that's what you think on the bent of your life is, that's what you head toward, then the Bible says you have life and peace. And whether or not you have a carnal mind or a spiritual mind, it is an issue of life and death. Whether you're going to heaven or whether you will be spending eternity in a devil's hell has to do with your thinking. Am I spiritually minded or am I carnally minded? Is that the bent of my life? Oh, I'm not telling you you won't have some moments here and there where you cross lines. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the bent of your life, the pattern of your life, what's constantly, continuously on your mind. Their thinking, their mind is the test. It's personal and it's provable. And you sit here this morning and you know on which it is. Is yours a carnal mind or a spiritual mind? Secondly, I'd remind you that a Christian is more than someone who simply embraces a list of beliefs. You say, well, I believe the Bible. I believe the statement of faith the New Life Baptist Church puts out. I believe that. I'm glad you do. But that's still not salvation. The fact of the matter is the proof of being a believer is the behavior that grows out of your thinking. You see, you can't do right unless you think right. And you won't be thinking right, according to Paul's writings, unless you've been saved by the grace of God and been given new life in Jesus Christ. When you've been given a new life, you can think spiritually. And you'll see spiritual truths and you'll realize what the Bible says and what it means. And you can be responsive to that. But I say what the world is looking for and needs to see is changed lives. From folks who say, I've been saved by the grace of God, they need to see a difference from what everybody else is. The distinction that Christ makes needs to be emphasized in this world. I remind you that this world is looking for something that would fulfill them, satisfy them, and gratify them. They'll not find it in the flesh, though that's where they'll look for it because they're dead spiritually. And I would remind you that they'll only find it in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why all those pieces of material on the table in the foyer, we've got to do a better job of telling people that they need Jesus Christ. He'll make the difference in their lives. And we ought to be able to invite them to look at ours to see a difference that Christ has made. That's how close and consistent we ought to live to what the Scripture set up for us. Only as the world comes to know Christ by the gift of faith which He gives will they find real life, real peace, and an understanding about what living is really all about. The thought of our mind will very naturally be fixed on the objects that are best suited to the reigning and ruling principles of our life, which will obviously ultimately affect your aims, your goals, and your ends. And so the fact of the matter is, if we just waited long enough, your life will prove on which side you are. But it could prove too late for you.
but the rest of us will be able to see. Here's what he gave his life for. Here's what she gave her life for. Look at what results they left in that. What do their children do? Do their children rise up and call them blessed? Do their children serve the Lord and honor him in all that they do? Do they leave a legacy that brings much honor and much glory to God? Because it's in the family where we are best seen for what we really are. You can fool me. And I'm sure on times you have. I'm confident that people fool us all the time. But there's one thing you can't fool. You can't fool the Holy Spirit that works and deals and moves and lives and hearts of people to change them from where they are to where they ought to be. And this morning I want you to know something. God cares about you and wants you to be everything that He designed you to be when He created man in the beginning. And to do that, He full well knew that man had to have his sin dealt with. A loving God in heaven sent His Son to die on the cross of Calvary to save us from our sin. And this morning, if you're here in this place and you say, Pastor, I'll be very honest with you. Uh, I think I'm a carnally-minded person. I don't think I'm saved. I don't think I'd go to heaven if I died. Then I'd say to you this morning, it's the good grace of God that He brings that conviction to your heart. He's not obligated to convict you. He's not obligated to tell you that you're a sinner. He did that of His free grace. And this morning, if you take an honest inventory of your own mind and what you think on in the bend of your life, and you come to the conclusion that I am not a believer, I'm carnally-minded, then let me urge you and exhort you not to leave this building until you've settled with this issue. Christ brought you here to hear this message, to deal with it as he would have you do. I hope you will. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you that it does not bar and pull punches. It simply sets forth in absolute statements of truth, and we're expected to conform to them. There are no ifs and buts about this, and this is not a discussion or debate. This is about the Word of God and what it states. And therefore, I pray this morning that you'll help us not to sidestep it, not to excuse it, not to try to get around it, but to face it head on. And let it be the litmus test of our relationship with you. What do we think? Dead or alive, it's what we think. And I pray this morning that you would speak to our hearts in this area and help us not to be deceived by either our flesh or the devil himself, as he would so much delight in doing to get us so caught up in satisfying and meeting the desires of our flesh that we would miss an eternal truth set forth in your word. That it's not what we say, and it's not just about a list or a creed that we say we endorse. It is the total thinking of our lives that reflect whether or not we are spiritually alive or spiritually dead. So drive this truth home to our hearts. Don't let us get away from it. And I pray those who are here in this building this morning to whom you've been speaking, I pray that they'll address this issue ere they leave today. I pray for those who ought to come for salvation, those who ought to come for baptism and church membership and prayer. Whatever the need is, help us not to walk away from hearing the truth and excuse ourselves from it. Help us to embrace it as we ought. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? And if you need a hymn book, turn to 282, Just As I Am. And that's exactly how the Lord would have us come, just as we are. Not to wait till we can try to improve things and change, but come as we are. So if you're here this morning without Christ, we invite you to come. invite you to allow someone to take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved and be saved for sure. 
no ifs, ands, buts about it. And it is a new birth. It's not just a funny feeling. It's not fuzzy things up your back. It's a, it's a reality of a new birth. In fact, it's so unique. The Bible even says that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. It's a total process. Some preachers have described it, and I think rightly so, that the new birth is more drastic than death of a living person. I think they're right. The changes that take place when a person comes to faith in Christ are greater than the changes that take place when you die. This morning, if you're here without Christ, I invite you to come. Or if you have doubts, let us help you address them and face them. Don't run from them. That solves no problem. It needs to be faced, addressed, and biblically carried out. I hope you'll come as we sing. 282 verse 1, if God has spoken, you come. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you very much. I thank you for your attention and your time, and I do appreciate you being with us today. Hope you'll be back for the evening service. Pax of Pied will make a presentation. Brother Farrell will be preaching. Hope you'll come, bring your Bible, and be in the service this evening. Let's pray, and you may go. Our Father, we're grateful again for the Word of God, and thank you for it shooting straight. Thank you that it does not compromise, nor should we. And I pray this morning that you'll help us to be certain and sure of what our minds think upon as a pattern of life. I pray that you'll help us to be certain and sure of our relationship to Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll help us to be more sensitive to Him than we have been. I pray that as we read your Word, you'll bring to our minds our understanding of things that our lives ought to be compared to and somehow conformed to. pray you'll deal with us in these areas. And I pray for all who are here this morning that you'll work in every heart and every life and pray you will yet bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour. Bless as we go now. Give safety to your people. Bring us back to the evening service. Bless the patch of presentation this evening. And bless Brother Fair as he speaks. Pray, Father, you'll be honored in all that's done and said here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.